Our scripture reading today is from John 17. The first passage is from verses, verses 6 to 19 from the 17th chapter of John. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you, and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you've given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a continuation of Jesus' prayer in front of his disciples shortly before he went to the cross. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you've loved me. Father, I want those who you have given me 
to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are times, I mean many times, but especially there's sometimes where when you're studying for a particular sermon um, as a pastor, you realize that this sermon could actually be a series of sermons. In other words, when I was studying John 17, it occurred to me that could be a whole series. It is so rich. There's so much in there. And I think it's because Jesus is coming down near the end of his life, right? This has been crossroads, uh, intersections on the way to the cross that we've been studying. And he's coming down to the end of his life, and he's just packing it all into one prayer. Of course, not all of his teachings, but so much of them. And he's saying things here that he didn't say elsewhere. And it's just incredibly rich. So I guess that's kind of a warning. Maybe uh, some summer um, I'll do a series just on John 17. Uh, Not this one, but perhaps some summer. So we've been in this series called Crossroads, Intersection Points on the Way to the Cross. And let me remind you of what has preceded John chapter 17. We've discussed some of these in details, uh, but others are just a reminder. In chapter 13, Jesus tells his disciples, as they're on their way to the cross, leadership is service. Whatever you think leadership is, whatever the world tells you leadership is, don't listen. I just want you to listen to one thing. To lead is to serve. In the kingdom of God, to lead is to put yourself second place and everyone else first. That's leadership in the kingdom of God. Chapter 14, he makes it clear that he is the way and the truth and the life. In case, disciples, you haven't gotten it before now, I want you to know something. You're looking at the singular way, the singular truth, the singular life. Why? Because... He didn't put it in these words, but this is what we understand. Now, why does he make such an outrageous claim that he's the way and the truth and definite article of the life? Not because he's good, not because his teachings are unparalleled. Both of those are true. Why does he say it? He says it because he's God. In other words, he tells them in chapter 14, the reason I'm the way, the truth, and the life is because to come to God is to come to me. You can't possibly get to God without me because I am divine Son of God, second person of the Trinity. It's me, God in the flesh. In chapter 15, he reminds the disciples that He's going to the cross, and he's going to leave. And the only way for them to survive is to stay in the vine. And remember we talked about how 
the image of Israel as the vine was common to their thinking, and now he steps into it, and he says, I want you to know in this new era, I am the vine. Stay in me, abide in me, and you'll have life. And then in chapters 14 and 16, he helps them to understand that they're not going to be orphans. Even though he's leaving, he's not leaving them behind. Even though he'll be present in the body, he will not be absent in the Spirit because he's going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to speak concerning him, going to convict the world of sin and guide the disciples into all truth. And then we get to chapter 17. And chapter 17 is the richest, most lengthy prayer of Jesus in the Gospels. So I said at the beginning, it could be a sermon series, right? Now, since I don't have the time, I'm just going to break chapter 17 into three words, just for us to focus. The first word is glory. The second word is sanctification. And the third word is unity. And that's what Jesus' prayer, among other things, is about. He says, Father, the time has come. This is, this is it, Heavenly Father. We've gotten to this point, and I want you to glorify your Son so that your Son may glorify you. What does that mean? Well, our first inclination is to say, well, what it means is he's going to his glory with his Father. And certainly there's glory there. But that's not really what he's talking about. Not at least first. He's saying, I want you to glorify the Son and allow the Son to glorify you by taking the next step, which is the cross. By dying as a criminal by stepping into a reality that no one would have expected the Messiah to step into. I want the cross to be the glory of God. It's not the only place that this kind of language is used, but it's so ironic, isn't it? That the cross should be his glory. What possibly could it mean? Again, our most basic instinct probably is to say, well, it's, it's a glory of a martyr's death. I can't tell you when I was studying this week how many stories I ran across. There were supposed to be great illustrations of martyr's death and how people died at the height of their glory in terms of being a martyr. And I read all of them and the analogies were supposed to be linked to Jesus. And the more I read them, the more I said, no, no. <laughs> First of all, they fall short because they're not Jesus. And second of all, a martyr's death was not the glory of God or the glory of the cross. It was way more than that. That's a very human glory. The glory of the cross was not a martyr's death, although obviously Jesus was a martyr. And obviously there was a sense in which it was his finest hour. But that's not the point here, I don't believe. There's at least three things in this glory of the cross. The first thing is this. The glory of the cross is that in the cross, 
in Jesus' brutal, agonizing death. Sin and death are defeated. In the cross, death swallows up death and creates life. That's why Paul, when he was trying to understand it for himself and pen it for others, said, Oh my, this is amazing. Take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, and especially verse, uh, chapter 15, especially verse 55. Death, he says, has been swallowed up in victory. And what was the path to swallowing up death and victory? The death of the Messiah. It's when death for the first time began to work backwards. Oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, grave, where is your sting? Because of Christ's death on the cross, the glory of the cross, death need not be the final word. The final word is eternal life. That's the glory of the cross. The second part of this glory of the cross, and by the way, there's been all kinds of descriptions of what the glory of the cross means and, and all that. I, I, actually like, I actually like a phrase, probably better than any other, that the cross is the vindication of God. That's a great statement. The cross is the vindication of God. Because everything about human history and everything about the plan of Satan just marched right along in lockstep with what always happens when an era or a person comes to an end. And in that death, God pronounced his final victory. The vindication of God. So first, the glory. See why this could be a whole sermon series? First, the glory of the cross is the vindication of God because death has been swallowed up in victory. Second, the glory of the cross is, in Jesus' words, that they may know eternal life. It's the baseline mission for Jesus Christ that people who otherwise, like every one of us, will naturally die, can experience the eternal life that came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no way to experience eternal life unless death has been conquered. And Jesus says, I've conquered death, and in the glory of that cross, eternal life is imparted to others. So the glory of the cross is the defeat of death. And the glory of the cross is the imparting of eternal life to others. And third, the glory of the cross, well, just chronologically, the glory of the cross is the completion of the mission that Jesus was sent to the earth to accomplish. From his very birth, the plan had been laid out that he would die on a cross. Before the foundation of the world, says the scriptures. It was planned out this way. The vindication of God in the death, burial, and resurrection of the cross. The glory of the cross is mission complete. The unity of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Not Jesus Christ under compulsion. 
by a vindictive and mean-spirited father. But the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the divine trinity, three in one in perfect unity, accomplished the mission in the cross. No wonder when Jesus hung on the cross and was moments from his death, he shouted out, it is finished. I did it. We did it. The mission's been accomplished. Look at the glory of the cross. That's what he came to do, and he knew it was the next step. And he said to God, God, give me the strength, just like he does in the Garden of Gethsemane, and glorify yourself through me. So the first word is glory. The second word I, I want to emphasize in this passage is sanctification. Jesus basically says, Father, I have delivered my message to these people that I call my friends, my disciples. But let's put it differently. Father, I've given my soul to them. I've given everything to them. And I have chosen them, Father, and I've set them apart. Yes, Father, that one who can't figure out how in the world to even follow me, that one who constantly, like a sheep, wanders away and I have to pull him back. Yes, I chose him. He is my special vessel. I've chosen them, Lord, and I've invested in them. And while, Lord, they may not be perfect, here's what I do know about them, or should I say what we now know about them. Once I chose them, they believed when others didn't believe. When others around me just walked away and said, this can't be true, this guy is crazy, how could it be? They continued to believe. Father, they followed me when other people went the other way. They spoke for me when others were silent. And Lord, they gave up everything to follow me. You see, those very verses, words are not in those verses, I know that. But we know that's true. And we know from the heart of Jesus, he said, Father, these people are special because. Because they've been selected by me. And because they followed me to this very hour. Now, Father, I want you to bless them. And I want you to spare them from all harm. And I want you to take them home with me right now. You know I'm telling a lie, right? <laughs> he didn't say that. If I'm writing the script, that's what I'd say. They've been through enough. Let them go to heaven with me. But he did not say that. He said, Father, a, a new stage in their sanctification is about ready to take place. 
Up until now, they have been under this pressure cooker with me. Now they'll be under this pressure cooker without me in their physical presence. A new stage of their sanctification is about to happen. They've been dramatically affected by your word, Father. They can't even think the way they used to think. Their minds have been transformed. They see the world differently. And like me, they're living in the world like aliens and strangers. It's like they're on a journey to somewhere else. Remember the book of Hebrews? A city whose builder and maker is God. And Lord, as they travel, it's going to be difficult for them, just like it has been for me. And Lord, here's what I want you to do. Let them walk through the fire. Don't take them out of the world. He didn't say this, but he could have. Don't rescue them from martyrdom. He didn't say this, but he could have. Don't let Peter be crucified like me. Don't let Paul get his head chopped off. Don't let them die that way. He didn't say that. He said, Father, don't take them out of the world. Let them walk through the world. But as they walk through all of this, here's what I want you to do. I want you to protect them from the evil one. And you may say, see, this is the way we think, isn't it? You may protect them from the evil one. Here's a good way to protect them from the evil one. Don't let them be killed. Don't let them be burned at the stake. But Jesus is not talking about that kind of protection because he knows that that is coming, not unlike what was about to happen to him. He says, protect them from the evil one. Don't let all the travails of life touch their souls. The evil one can do all kinds of things, but don't let their souls be touched. Protect them, Lord, from the evil one. That, that's a different worldview, isn't it? I know it's a different worldview than than I, for instance, hold as a human father. Because sometimes, even when I know it's not best, I want to rescue my kids. You, you know, my kids are probably lucky that I'm not rich. Because I know my impulse. Every time they had a problem, I would fix it. Every time the car would break down, i just drive down to Royal South and buy a brand new Toyota. That's what i do. So it's counterintuitive, isn't it? Jesus said, I want those that I dearly love to walk through the fire, and I want you to protect their souls. The last word is unity, right? The first two were glory and sanctification and now unity and by the time you get to the theme of unity well it's there a couple of places but especially in verses 20 through 26 it's where Jesus has shifted to pray for all the believers 
In other words, at this point, he's, he's projecting ahead and he's saying, I'm not just praying for the people who are gathered around me, Lord, but there's a lot of other believers now and in the future, and I pray for them too. And by the way, you might look at this prayer and say, oh, verses 20 through 26 is his prayer for us. Yes and no. I, I think that at that point, it's a linchpin. And Jesus is saying, these people are going to follow too in the future and now. So what you do for the disciples, do for them. And what you need to do for them, do for them. I pray for all of them. But as I look ahead, Lord, I especially pray for the future disciples of mine to find unity in the truth. Now quickly, without going on a rant, unity is a really popular thing, isn't it? Unity at all cost. And that is not what Jesus is teaching. I want them to be unified in the truth. I want them to be unified in the truth concerning me. I want them to have a place of unity where they all come to and they all unite in spite of their differences in any number of other ways. They unite around the truth concerning me. That's where the unity comes from. We don't unite around unity. Or a sentimental idea of what unity is about. No, it's not fuzzy sentimentalism. It's unity in the truth. I want them to be united in the truth, says Jesus. And in effect, I want them to know me and to know you and be united with me and you in the truth. I want them to be one. You can't help but think about Chapter 15 in John, right? I want them to be linked in, essentially into the vine. Don't let them stray. You know, the ultimate end for a believer is to know and to be with Jesus Christ. And that's what he's talking about when he talks about unity. Now, I, I'll hasten to an end here um, and suggest three takeaways for us. When Jesus prays for the disciples and prays for the future disciples, he prays for all of us. And what does he pray for us? He prays this for us. Father, let them share in my glory namely the cross. Let them share in that glory. Let them share in the glory which is the defeat of sin and death and the eternal life to come. Let them share in the glory of the cross because like me, they're going to walk right straight through persecution. And like me, Father, they're going to be in the midst of it. And they're going to say what I'm going to say. Why have you forsaken me, God? Give them the glory of the cross in their life. Give them eternal life. And give them an unswayed heart in the midst of life itself. 
The purpose of this glory is to be one with me and with you and to live eternally in our presence. So, Father, give them the glory of the cross. Second, Father, unite them in your truth. I've already said something about that, but I, I, I want to say something more. There, there was a history in the church that read the teachings of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And as they looked at those teachings, they said, that's it. The rest of it, which is this part, is not important. And the other part, which is this part, that came before, is not important. The only thing that's important is right there, the Gospels. And here's what the church routinely said. No, the Gospels are the historic revelation concerning Jesus Christ. And they're right there. And they're in the interpretive tool for understanding all of this. Because all of this is about Jesus. All of it. Now, of course, for Jesus, he would have spoken about the Old Testament. But that's what he said, and that's what he meant when he said, the law is fulfilled in me. Everything you've heard in the synagogue, it's all about me. Now, advance ahead. And the church has made the same declaration about the rest of the New Testament. It's not different than the Gospels. As some early on in the history of the church said it was. And some today say it is. Paul is not in conflict with Jesus. The epistles of John are not in conflict with the Gospel of John. The epistles of Peter are not in conflict with what Jesus said concerning himself in the Gospels. It's a unified whole. So my friends, here's the evangelical ethos that can never be shaken out of my being. My friends, this revelation of God, with all its humanness, and I don't want to go into that doctrine, but with all of its humanness, is Word of God. And it is the thing, the only thing, that is our guide concerning God and Jesus Christ. And it's authoritative. And it's what unites us in the truth. And when for the first five centuries of the church, the church got together and battled out statements concerning the person of Jesus Christ and the divine trinity and sin and salvation. And we have them a lot of times. They're called creeds. When they hammered all of that out, it wasn't the perfection of Scripture. But it was an unbelievably accurate summary of the Scripture itself. It's one thing to say Jesus is Lord, and it's another thing to say Jesus is Lord. You know what I mean. You can say it any number of ways, but you have to, you have to embrace what Jesus is Lord means in the scripture 
And in the history, especially the first five centuries of the church, it's that that unites us in the truth. And if we ever uh, depart from that, this place will be a shell. There won't be two services. There won't be a vibrant worship. There'll be people scattered all over the place. It'll be a dying church. We got to be united in the truth because it's our life. So he prays for us, Father, help them to share in my glory, namely the cross. Father, unite them in the truth. And you know why he wants to unite us in the truth? He already alluded to it at the very beginning. He said, Father, I came and I did my job. I accomplished my mission. And now it's their turn. It's their turn to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. Thank Pentecost, we're going there in a couple of weeks. It's their job to spread the glory of the cross everywhere they go, not just with words, but with their life. It's their job to complete the mission that I came to establish. Lord, unite them in the truth so they can complete my mission. That's a heavy weight. And you know what else it is? It's an absolute joy. We have the opportunity to complete the mission of the incarnate Christ in this world. That's our job. The third thing. It, it might seem like there's been eight things there. Really, there's not. Share in my glory of the cross. Unite them in the truth. And Father, I want you to sanctify them. I want you to allow the difficulties of life to shape them. I want you to put them on that spinning wheel of a potter. I want them to understand themselves to be the clay. I want you to spin their life around and around, and I want you to shape them and form them. I want you to sanctify them through their life and make them the vessels I know they can be. Sanctify them, God. I pray this for them. Paul knew um, Jesus' words really well. And I can't help but believe that when he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 5.23, he was thinking of Jesus' prayer. Because he prayed for the church, the ones that Jesus prayed for. And he said, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, inside and out, completely holy. And may your whole spirit and soul and body 
be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Sanctification. It's a process. It happened last week and it will happen next week and right up until the time that you go to glory. So allow God to use the circumstances of your life to shape you on a potter's wheel and sanctify you and make you the vessel he knows you can be. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful you didn't leave us alone. And we're grateful that you pray for us. There's some sense, Lord, in, in which the prayer is not over. There's a way in which you are interceding for us constantly. We don't understand that, but we know it's true. And Lord, you invite us into the glory of the cross. Sometimes it's painful, but it's always glorious. And you invite us into unity, Lord, so that we can live in your presence with others and finish the work that you began and, and you promise you're going to sanctify us because you asked the Father not to take us out of the world. And we know all that, Lord, because you sent your Holy Spirit to continue to do the work. So this week, as we walk out of this place on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday and then again on Sunday, sanctify us. Sanctify us by your truth and make us the people you want us to be. In the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.